0: in 2011, The Three Musketeers was something of a surprising project for Paul W.S. Anderson, who at this point had made exciting popcorn movies from established properties, from Death Race and Alien vs. Predator, to his long line of Resident Evil movies. And the Three Musketeers marked a radical departure for him. Seeing here, seeing them take on the classics Washbuckling Tale from Dumas. Of course, this wouldn't be the first time the property had been adapted, with the Three Musketeers probably ranking up there with the likes of both Django and Zakatoe, for one of those franchises which have been adapted probably more times than people have remade the song *Louis Louie. Here, though, he attempts to give an almost steampunk reworking of the title as uh, the young Dog teams up with the three legendary Musketeers. To take on the villainous cardinal, as well as casting his wife as the spy slash femme fatale milady, um, this was certainly an interesting reworking of the material. And here he proved himself capable of doing a very a period piece, while at the same time bringing many modern elements into the film. In probably what's one of his more overlooked, overlooked later works, I'm Elwood. I'm Kim, and you listen to movies and tea. Let's take it to the booth.) <music> Once again, uh, for joining us here uh, for another exciting edition of Movies and Tea. Um, we'd like to also uh, start by thanking everyone who has been retreating and liking our, liking our previous episode where we were talking about Death Race. Uh, we do really appreciate the support that everyone has shown to the podcast so far, and uh, we hope that you've been, been enjoying this journey through the filmography of Paul Devich Hansen, which is obviously. Season one here on uh, here on the show. Uh, obviously, next week we're going to be looking at Pompeii, uh, which will be our final episode of this season. So hopefully, uh, you stick with us after that and come back because we have got some other exciting things planned.
1: So yeah, we also have to thank that uh, Death Race. Also, that Death Race episode also was part of um, Christmas in July blogathon hosted by Drew Movie Reviews. Um, you can check it at uh, drewreviewmovies.wordpress.com. You should check out his site. I mean, Drew's a really good friend to us. Um, I actually co host um, the Ultimate Decades Blogathon with him uh, in February every year. So if anybody's here is actually interested, you should keep your eyes peeled on his site and, well, my own personal blog just to see uh, if there's anything that. Uh, or anything that you'd like to contribute at that time?
0: Cool, because yeah, it's always good to you know be part of the community. I mean, this is the something that we're trying to promote is more the idea of taking both blogging and podcasting back to the community spirit. And whenever we have an opportunity to take part in like a a phone or a um it's always nice to to obviously get together and you know discover new podcasts new blogs and and share content i think that's what the community needs at the moment so you know get out there and support your fellow podcasts support your fellow blogs you know share the hashtag bottom family or underdog pods and just don't let it be the fact that we end up with this state where we've got five five blogs you think that they run everything you know it's you know support your indie uh, the indie scene once again we're in there and celebrate some indie talent. But, obviously, tonight, as we said earlier, we're talking about The Three Musketeers. I mean, this is from 2011, so... Um, the film itself was made in a budget of $75 million and grossed $132 million, so again, another profitable film for Anderson. Even though the critics did actually blast this one, um, I actually really enjoyed this one. This one's a fun swashbuckling tale, uh, even though for the three musketeers, there's not a huge amount of sword fighting, which is very surprising, since <laughs> as the property you might going to expecting, you know, there to be, you know, at least some sword fighting. But here it's actually kind of surprising, and it's, as I said already, this is kind of an almost steampunk-esque tale, with some flashy uh, visuals thrown in for good measure. But, Um I mean, Kim, did you seen this one before i mean it's one of those films that no one ever seems to talk about so
1: i haven't actually um this was the first time that i saw it i don't i don't really feel like like i think i've only ever seen one three musketeers movies and i don't even remember much of it like i remember the general story but okay um i've never actually like you know uh, what was this originally? It was what a book, right? I guess yeah, it was, a
0: novel. It was a classic novel. Yeah, a classic novel. Uh, yeah, um, it was a
1: classic novel. I, I mean, I I have this issue of not reading classic novels fast enough, and I, I I have a mission on my blog to read through the classics, but unfortunately, that kind of fell off a cliff as I was trying to do Jane Austen and then got stuck at the last book and then never actually watched it. <laughs> So maybe I'll add uh, Stream Musketeers onto my list and then uh, I'll take a look at the source material, which is something I really like to do. But, I mean, for this movie, I I think it is really fun. It's really fun, really entertaining. Um, I mean, I feel like Paul W.S. Anderson, like, when he's, uh, you know, there are times when he does movies which are really um, exciting, intense, like Event Horizon. And then there's other times, like Resident Evil, which kind of falls into the same category as this, which is just really fun and entertaining. There's, I don't know if there's really that much technique to it, but there is a lot of style. Um, like, there's, like, really lovely costumes. Um, the weaponry is designed really well. Uh, the whole set where it's uh, it's set, like, these uh, twisting waterways and all that stuff. It's really, really lovely to, like, just watch. It's really fun. And, I mean, I personally love... Um, I love uh, Mila Jovovich a lot, so I don't have a problem with his, him casting his wife into all kinds of his films. Um, I always find she's pretty cool. It's just, this one was a very, like, there was one part where it was, like, very a la Resident Evil. <laughs> um, so I was kind of like, well, you know, I guess if it works, it works. But it doesn't really break away from the fact that, you know, he is typically, as we always say, he's always seen as, like, the Resident Evil directors. And when you do a move like that sort of scene, where you take that same character, put her into a, you know, period costume, and just make her do the same thing, it feels a little bit like, well, you know, (laughs) there's a real tribute to her character.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's an extensive use of slow motion, especially with, with the character M'lady. and lady, and we're we're going to come back to that scene, scene in particular in a minute because I did really think it was one of the one of the most strong elements of the scene. Um, obviously, if you're not familiar with with the source material, we basically have our three musketeers who are uh, here this they're seen more as spies for the French King, and which is a, certainly a unique thing. And when they introduce their the the they're in all pulling off a very sort of, like, spy-like mission they're there with all these sort of, like, top-secret YOD equipment that puts, like, it brings to mind, like, Assassin's Creed when we think of uh, some of the unique equipment that uh, works its way into those games. And here we've obviously introduced, we've got, like, Athos who's in the ye olde diving gear. And I have to say that <laughs> anyone who thinks that you can, like, dive and swim with, like, swords and armor are going to be greatly mistaken i mean that was one of the my my opening gripes of this film is the fact that we have someone here i thought maybe you know it's maybe it's like a shallow river or something like that and he's just like walking along the bottom but no it's actually a deep river he's actually properly swimming in diving equipment with full swords um and this apparently proves him no problem but that and the fact that we've got people swinging swords around like it's a bloody flag. Um, we're just, like, coming the opening groats. But, yeah, I mean, we, they do a really nice job of introducing these characters. We've obviously got uh, Aphos. Um, it's introduced. Uh, we've got Pathos, who is, like, basically the brute force of the group. Um, his amazing, you know, amazing skill is to get, allow himself to be captured by... Uh, the enemy forces, and uh, so they basically bring them into his fortress. Um, and then we've got Aramis, who's like a, an ex-priest ten soldier of fortune, who here is kind of shown surprisingly more of a ladies' man, which is really surprising because in normally the source material, Paphos is like the ladies' man. He's all about life, separate life, and he's all about drinking and women and moon wine and song. That's his, his thing. So to see Aramis here, you know, leaping off the rooftop. I mean, he's perfectly introduced there with, with, like, the Catholic uh, beads and stuff, but to see him, like, dropping in on, on the gondolier and seducing the the busty lady uh, was kind of a bit of a surprising turn for his character, but, you know, it it works, and these characters all come across as they're supposed to do. I mean, Matthew McFadden as is, uh, is, is great, and it's... Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of surprising because the only thing I can remember him sort of, like, playing is, um, is in Spooks as a, as really? yes, yeah, an MI5 agent.
1: Because I, I actually, right before we watched this one, I had rewatched Pride and Prejudice, and he was, he's, um, he plays, uh, Darcy in, um, okay. Pride and Prejudice, and I, I, that was the part that I know him from, and I love him from it, uh, and I love him a ton. So I was really excited to see that he was in this film. I mean, he was also in, um, he had a supporting role, I think, in, I don't know who was supporting, in, uh, the other one with kieran Knightley. Anna Karenina. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had, like, a really different appearance for that one. I think he had, like, a mustache and everything. So it was really, uh, unrecognizable.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, for myself, he's kind of like, um... If you can't get Clive Owen, you get, you get Matthew McFadden. Because they're essentially the same the same guy. They, they're they very similar. Especially uh, if you give them anything particularly talky to do. Uh, it, they're very kind of interchangeable at in that point. Uh, Ray Stevenson who plays Power Force, I, every time Ray Stevenson's brought up, I can never remember who he is. He's most like Carl Urban. I can never remember who he is, even though I've seen him in things. So for myself, Ray Stevenson will always be associated with Punisher Warzone, but here he's really fun, there's both um, and Luke Evans, again, another actor I can never place, even though I've obviously seen him in things. Um, fast, yeah, fast he's furious. in the Fast and Furious movies, I mean, he's,
1: he's... He's in a lot of stuff, like, Luke Evans is in a lot of stuff, like, so many, it's, a, it's like, I'm starting to realize that there's a lot of actors that we see, and they're in a lot of things, in, like, little scattered supporting roles here and there. And and you just like or cameo roles and stuff. And then you never remember where they come from. But then you're watching a movie and they pop up like like maybe like 20 years down the road when they've had like 300 films. Then you you would be like sitting down and you'd be like, whoa, hey, this guy, you know. But they just need to have like this role that really defines them.
0: Yeah. Obviously, um, Milena Jovanić is Milady. Uh, which I think was only the the, the only role that um, she could have really really sort of played in this, and I, you kind of know Anton's like looking for a way to work her in, and she's perfectly cast as Malady. I think she absolutely nails the role, and she's like one of the stronger elements of the film. Even though her disguise is absolutely rubbish in the opening, as it's basically a masquerade mask she wears, and it's sort of like that's just a really awful disguise, but. You know, I kind of like the fact that she's part of this this spy team that's going in, and she obviously double crossed them. And the thing with Milady is, you're always waiting for her to screw over Athos uh, because she's obviously his ex wife, and the whole time she's the whole time she's like this beautiful, dangerous element, and you're kind of waiting to see how she's going to screw screw Athos up because she's always her whole role in the Three Musketeers is as this sort of like double agent. She's constantly playing both sides. She's never... Uh, if she was in the Batman world, she would certainly be Selina Kyle or Catwoman. She's that <laughs> sort of presence. So, you never know whether to trust her or not. Um, and here, I think she really perfectly plays that role, like, down to a T. The other person of, of obviously, of note would be Christoph Wolf as uh, Cardinal Richelieu. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean... Christopher Wolves here perfectly is perfect for this role. Because here with the Cardinal you've got someone who is obviously charming on the outside but an absolute devious sod behind the scenes. And I think that's absolutely perfect. And previously when you've had the Cardinal play, they always tend to like cast him as someone like the obvious villainous role. Like they've had like Christopher Lee play him in like the Oliver Reed version. Um in the really underrated um Charlie Sheen version, he's played by Um, And Tim Kerry played him in the really underrated um, Charlie Sheen version. So it's always had these really obvious sort of villainous uh, actors playing the role. So it's kind of nice when you've got someone like Christopher Waltz who can play this charming side. And it becomes a little more believable the fact that you've got the Cardinal who's essentially using the inexperiencedness of the king. So King Louis at this point here played by a really awful, awful Freddy Fox. (laughs) <laughs> oh my God. Goodness.
1: He was it's... He was cringy. We, we kept making fun of his co- making fun of his costumes and what color his costumes are gonna be next. <laughs> yeah, that was his main purpose. His main purpose was being useless and making me laugh at like what ugly costume he was gonna co- color he was gonna come up with next.
0: And Juno Temple looking really young here. She looks like a child actor here um, as Queen Anne. I think the only person worse than Freddy Fox in this movie is James Corden, who plays Planchon, who's basically the, uh, the, the the bitch of the uh, Musketeers. He's their manservant, but normally he's... He feels like he's got more of a role, but here he's just... The only role he serves is just to be bullied by the Musketeers at any given opportunity, so... Uh, I,
1: I, has, has James Corden ever really been... Like, I know he's a great talk show host. Yeah. But I don't really know, like... I always see him in these, like, little roles. Like, I mean, even in um, Ocean's 8, he was only, like... He only came in as, like, kind of like a little cameo role at the, at like, the second half.
0: Well, so it,
1: it's kind of like, you know, he always gets played. Yeah. Which
0: is like... Well, he plays... Uh, he's the voice of Peter Rabbit, which many people have actually said is the worst thing about Peter Rabbit, so... Um... And then, finally, we've obviously got Orlando Bloom as Duke of Buckingham, um, which, Orlando Bloom actually went on record, he was, like, constantly saying how much he really enjoyed the villainous role, and here he really camps it up. Um, mm. And someone I forgot to mention, to is Mad M- Mugston as uh, Rochefort, who is just outstanding in this film. And, mm. yeah, I mean, as I said, we've obviously got Doug Tanyan here, who's played by Logan LeMond, who is as forgettable as the actor himself. Um yeah, D'Artagnan Tanya himself, I mean he's he's you know, he's this hot head, he's got, got grand ideas of becoming a musketeer. Unfortunately by the time he gets to Paris, the Musketeers are no more because the Cardinal has retired them all. So our trio of Musketeers, he manages to through a number of bizarre occurrences, manages to find himself in a duel with all three. Because somehow he might he manages to piss off three people in the short time he's in Paris, and they happen to be all three of them happen to be the Musketeers. Um,
1: <laughs> and then he ske- and then he had to schedule the duels one hour after the next for each one.
0: <laughs> so yeah, he's uh, he's he's really warming himself to people in Paris. Um, in particular, we the thing which really got me is that he gets into an argument with Amos, who gives him a ticket because has apparently has been reduced to a parking warden in, in Paris, and. They have this conversation, he's sort of like he's uh Amos is using this cut using, you know, flowery language. And uh Doug Tanyan's like, speak French and he just speaks in English and he's just basically like your horse took a dump in the street. I mean I mean, is it too hard for him to say Ton Chevelle, I praise it on discharge Dan's la rue? I mean, if we're speaking obviously That's French, right. I mean just to throw, uh, did they, like, think again that the popcorn munching audience of the summer blockbuster would be, like, overwhelmed by a little French in their movie to have to read, like, two seconds of subtitles? I mean, it's not, it's not particularly difficult what he would have had to say, but no. Instead, he has to say, just says the same thing again in English, so the scene comes off really stupid. I don't know what you thought about that, but.
1: I was actually like, huh? <laughs> I was like, huh? What? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <going> it's, <laughs> it's jarring, isn't
1: it? <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, the Three Musketeers is kind of like, I think in terms of the dialogue and um, a lot of this, uh, these little things, there was a lot of like suspension of belief.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> I mean, right from the start where you were talking about like swimming with weapons, and I mean, they blasted open that stupid hole in the safe, and it was just like, The water just like, they just like came up all together in the same spot. (laughs) How unlikely is that supposed to happen, right? There's so many things that don't make sense. and then There's like that whole trajectory even at the end when they're like from airships and stuff like that to whatever. It's just, it's so out there. There's so many things that don't make sense.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, I really enjoyed that like 18th century sort of spycraft. Um... I mean, is it 18? What do I mean? What sort of century are we? I mean,
1: I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not like I'm not saying I didn't enjoy the movie because it, I mean I watched tons of things that suspend belief. I mean, I love Fast and the Furious, and that is yeah. like the like the newer movies are absolute suspension of belief. And then you got like other things like you know I like Sharknado, which is kind of like a huge suspension of this of belief because it's just impossible something would happen. I, so, you know, I don't have an issue with it, but it's just, you know, little things like that is where it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a little mind boggling when things like that happen. But when you're sitting on a blockbuster, I guess you don't really think about it so much.
0: Yeah. I mean, for myself, I really enjoyed the the elements where they're obviously trying to find ways way to do modern technology within this period. So, as you said, like when we got the airship and it's just like stacked with. Guns and flamethrowers, and I thought that was was like so cool, especially when we got the scene where uh Buckingham's tower is basically being attacked by this by his own airship um and you got the musketeers are basically unleashing hell on it him with this uh this barrage of weapons that they have on this uh this airship I thought that was a really really cool scene um certainly the opening as well when they're basically they're breaking into the vault. Um, there's a lot of really nice trademarks there, especially for Anderson. The fact that we got a lot of, um, the lot of the, lot of the idea of those endless corridor shots. Um, hmm. the, the symmetry in particular is really yeah. spot on. And, spe- and certainly with his framing, everything's very central and it's all sort of like, it's like all his trademarks are all coming to the forefront here. I think the only one that he doesn't really work in there is obviously the God's eye view because of obviously working in, in the tunnels. But when we look at, uh, that opening shot where Milady is sliding through the tunnel and we've got like the bullets whizzing past, uh, this -hmm. bullet trap, this booby trap corridor, um, just how he's obviously setting up the scene, like the framing of the shot and seeing those trademarks, like, being used to their maximum potential here. it was just absolutely great uh, to see um, and then, as I said I mean it, the film itself I really enjoy and as I'm saying I, mean, I really enjoy the fact that he's working in sort of modern technology and giving it an old timey twist um, in particular the standout scene where we've got Milady lady breaking into the vault and she's timing her attacks against these these guards um against the noise being made by the guards that are marching in the in the courtyard. So she knows that she can only kill people when they're at the farthest end of the corridor and it gets the last guy and it's like she's got a pistol, he's got a sword, and he's sort of like if you fire your shot, then they're gonna hear and she's and she's times it so that it goes off with the bong of the clock. And it's just the whole sequence is just so fun to watch and yeah. When you see her like strip off her gown and she's got like um, the rappel equipment and and stuff, and initially it looks like oh, this is just like Anson trying to work in a bit of sexiness into the movie, but it makes sense because she's not going to go and do spy um, in a big yeah,
1: fluffy gown. Yeah, yeah, in a big
0: <laughs> fluffy dress, it's not going to make sense to try and do spy stuff. You can't scale a wall in that.
1: Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get, I, you know, I honestly think that. The the act I think the acting here aside from uh, the the king, um, most of them it, it's done really well and it's really surprising actually. I don't know why I'm always so surprised, but like Paul Anderson manages to get these really great actors to be a part of these films and they turn out to be really well. Like you know like Mads Mikkelsen, he's he's just you know he's just so perfect for Rochefort, and then you know you got. Christoph Waltz was so good as the Cardinal and it adds this like slyness in that sense and there's like all these like I don't know it's, it's really it's really nice to watch. like I, I think that like all acting is really really spot on like everyone's casted really well for their roles. Uh, whether you know them from before or not, they're still really fun to watch. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of drama here and there, but there is a decent amount of action and a lot of, like, little, um, you know, I don't know, what do you call it? It's kind of, like, just a little bit of, I guess, like, suspense in the sense that, you know, you get to kind of think about who is double-crossing who, and everybody seems to have their own agenda. And it really fits in this kind of story, um... But I mean, going back to, you know, talking about like his signature shots, one of the things that other than that, you know, you, you were t- talking about the corridors and the city, um, when you were saying the God's eye view, obviously that scene didn't have it. But I really loved the God's eye view when he uses um, as they're coming in from like uh, a ship and they have these great plan and you have this thing just just going around um, the the cap, the castle or whatever you call it yeah. itself loved the shots and he really does a great job and kind of like, it kind of lays out the map of what they're going to be uh, like, who, 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 the area they're going to be penetrating. I don't remember if it was an airship or if it was um, when the Three Musketeers were hatching their plan to kind of like figure out how to get like how to like infiltrate the the thing and kind of bamboozle everyone with their own plan and do the unexpected um, I, I don't remember that really well.
0: Um. Well, yeah, I mean Anthony. I mean again, Anthony's really very good at establishing space, um, mm-hmm. so that he he sets up so that without like breaking it down too much for the audience, it's of like he does it very subtly. And as you said, when they're doing the whole plan to break into Buckingham Palace, um, and it's sort of like well. The lady basically knows all their tactics so she's like establishing we're establishing space by just seeing the various plans that the musketeers would use so it's sort of like oh like poor force is going to get himself arrested and then he's going to break out so we're seeing oh it's in that area and it's like oh our force is a skilled diver so we're seeing obviously the lake area and the moat area um and then we've obviously got aramis who is kind of like as a kind of like takes the assassin's Creed route, so he's like on the uh high route and stuff and it's you think the way he sort of like goes through all these this is very elaborate sort of plans and how they're gonna foil it and then it's just basically, Oh yeah, we've arrested Dog um uh, and you think, Oh, well that plan didn't work and then suddenly it's sort of like their actual plan is revealed and it's just so absolutely it's so perfect as how it all comes together and you get this idea of like That you know all the layout of, of this area and it's not just sort of like, oh, this is just one area that we're sort of focused on. You have, you know each area and what is obviously available to the character. Same way with the palace. We see bits of the palace, but we're able to, in our mind, put it all together and say, oh, well, this area belongs here and that area is there. And, um, it, it really has a nice flow to it. Um, how he introduces each area and obviously the potential. Uh, forum I think the only one that doesn't really live up to his potential and he seems to be building up to more is the initial duel where it seems that Tane is going to fight these three musketeers he's showing all these different elements and you think oh well he could like swing off that rope he could run up that uh, alley way and it just feels very contained and he doesn't sort of use half the tricks that you would expect him to use within this sequence so that was the only disappointment I found really
1: I'm not, I don't feel like I like this movie as much as you did. I, like, I don't think it was really entertaining, mm. but I probably wouldn't go back and watch it a second time unless, like, it was on TV or something. Oh, yeah. But I don't have TV, so that's a problem. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, but, the, you know, um, you know, actually, like, I, I don't know what else to say right now, because, but uh, one of those things that I found really funny about Mad Michelson's character, and I don't know why, I don't know if it was done deliberately or not, is the fact that, maybe you can help me, okay. like, fix this mystery that I have, yeah. is um, Miles Michelson is known to be the best swordsman, right? That was his character. He was supposed to be the best swordsman. Yeah, And then during the whole length of the film, until the final part, he's using guns the entire time. And I was like... And I was just, like, looking at this character, I was like, I'm not saying he's not, like, he's not a great actor in his role. I think he did a really fantastic role in, like, putting in, like, that kind of, like, really, um, I don't know. He just has this, he just, I don't even know how to describe Mads Michael. He's so unique as an actor that, um... I I just really love him in this role. And and it's just, like, I just don't understand, like, what is the purpose of the fact that they gave him that role where he's using guns to fight most of these battles, these, like, little things that they have each other. Like, even when in in the first shot, when he's, like, threatening D'Artagnan, he uses a gun to kind of, like, stop him from his, like, stupidity. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and then the final one, he finally, like uses a sword to be in that final fight.
0: Okay. I mean, I'm really glad you brought it up um, because I, I mean, yes, I mean, this is a problem. The problems of the film is the fact there isn't enough swordplay play for a swashbuckling epic that like the Three musketeers. Um, in particular, Pothos is basically clubs people uh, when he's <laughs> in the book. I mean, he's a fearsome swordsman. They're all capable swordsmen. Um, so yeah. what he's basically clubbing people and, Yes, I know he's a brute, but at the same time, he's still used to a sword. Um, As for uh, Mads Maggerson's character, I mean, obviously, the problem is with Mads Maggerson. We're probably that used to seeing him playing, like, villainous roles, like uh, in, like, Casino Royale or his long stint playing Hannibal Lecter. So that whenever we seem to do a comedy or something a little lighter, we've still got these ideas in our mind of who he is. Um, Even recently, I mean, he did a beer commercial for, I think it was, like, Heineken. And he's just riding his bicycle through, like, Düsseldorf, and he's sort of, like, talking about this beer, and it's still very creepy because it's Man <laughs> Michelson. Uh, we have this very creepy <laughs> element to him, but, yeah, um, I feel it's very underused as... because, obviously, he is the Master swordsman. Um, as for the actual scene with Dog Tanya, that is actually very true to historical form, um, because while in, like, Swashbuckling, and the we've seen them have these huge, long sword fights, uh, in the actual period you would obviously try and end the fight as quickly as possible, so it's not uncommon to give your opponent a quick kick in the crotch um, if it <laughs> gives you the opportunity. So for him to just basically shoot him, because he sees him, a Dog that Tanya, as being beneath him, so he's not going to sully his blade, uh, as he True. points out. So it makes more sense. If he, cause he knows he's got the upper hand, he might as well just shoot him, because he's going to mm-hmm. avoid getting in potential of a sword fight where he could potentially come off uh, the embarrass himself in case like Doug Tanyan got a lucky strike and ruined his legacy but yeah I mean he was very underused to the extent yeah. I mean just generally still plays very underused in this film and it was more where they could use like guns and explosives and uh, things like that they were more sort of commonly used and I thought that was kind of a, sh- a missed opportunity especially as I said looking at the source material um, and but then again when I see things like Doug Tanyan when he pulled gets into that uh duel with the queen's Guard, and he's there waving his sword around and it's sort of like oh god it's like that's the best way to lose your ears if you're waving your sword around like that <laughs> i mean the fact is that <laughs> it's the the rapier the sword that he's supposed to be using is designed for stabbing not slashing because it's about you only using the the sword itself it's not traditionally um sharp on the sides it's a point so it's a about uh stabbing so it's about deflecting your opponent's blade so you can stab them through whereas he seems to be like treating it like he's holding a bloody broadsword um yeah. especially the way he swings it round. it's sort of like it's not a flag <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking sword <laughs> and he's supposed to i mean this is the thing his father who we're introduced to um played by here by dexter fletcher in that interesting cameo he's like I have nothing left to teach you. And it's like, clearly you do have something left to teach him. Um, yeah. Code one, number, number one, how to hold a bloody sword. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe they got lesser standards in the country or, or something or his father just wanted him off the farm or what. I don't know, but. I
1: think it's, it's just, you know, I think it's just, it, it's it's tri- it's giving this film this like goofy thing, you know, like D'Artagnan is kind of like, a mega goofball you know he's, he's just like you know in the middle of a fight I guess it's kind of like a little bit of what I remember of the last three musketeers I watched and I can't remember what version it was um so it, it's like it's like you know they kind of have this like kind of um I don't know playful tone to it a little yeah. so you see him like in the middle of a big fight and he's trying to get the attention of of the, the queen's uh I don't know servant a chambermaid? I don't know what, yep. her name, what, what her role she is. Uh, yeah, and you see that happening, and just kind of like, oh, you know, I just want to know your name, and blah, blah, blah. And he's trying to pick up girls while he's doing this.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, Doug Tanya is the cocky young swordsman. I mean, that's his whole weakness, is the fact yeah. that he's a hothead. And he thinks he fancies himself as a ladies man. How creepy, though, those scenes are where he's trying to pick the, the handmaids up. I mean,. <sighs> He doesn't like wait to catch her sight. No, he, the queen is busy going along her business, uh, with her handmaiden. And he's just to stop all possessions. I mean, the queen's just got all the time in the world to wait for you to try and pick up <laughs> this woman. Uh, that, that you've just basically forcing yourself upon here because you've, you met her once. And it, this also made no sense. is the fact that when she's introduced initially, she's like village girl. And then, next time we meet her, she's dressed in all this bloody finery as the Queen's handmaiden. It's sort of like, no, I don't think the handmaiden of the Queen would be dressing down to go into the village uh, like that. She would be kept around the palace. She wouldn't be dressed down at all, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, even as a... If you're the Queen's handmaiden, I'd assume you can probably order some servants to go do anything you need to do in town.
0: Yeah, they have, have, you know, E.O.D. Lackey to yeah <laughs> going um, yeah I mean but the actual the, the actual musketeers themselves I think mean, they're up there with my favourite representations of it and um, I mean I don't yeah I'm, I was very happy with, with the casting of this film and, and and many elements as I said it just needed more soul play I think that's the only thing that's really missing for me Is it, it's an enjoyable sort of rom but it's something that you'd you would catch if it was on tv it's not something you would think oh i'm going to sit down and watch three musketeers uh, <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. and if you do you want you want to watch like one of the other ones you want to watch like the Oliver Reed or the uh charlie sheen version or if you want to like watch one like a, a bit of a different toe you watch like uh the man in the Iron mask um from 1998 which has them like as old man musketeers ah, that's
1: the
0: one i saw men in the
1: iron mask um <laughs> it was with Leonardo DiCaprio right
0: yeah and he also has Joe Dapper as Pofos, which is the best performance ever of that Men, because at this point in in life Poffos is um not only loves life women women wine and song but he's also a suicidal drunk as well so he constantly <laughs> ends up with these they have to deal with him constantly trying to kill himself, and the fact that um it's so common now that Aramis is predicted when he's going to do it, so he knows he's going to go and try and hang himself in the barn, so he goes and saws through the beam and causes the whole barn to collapse. Because as he puts it, he said, "I'm a genius, not an architect." But yeah, if you get a chance, definitely watch uh, the 1998 version of uh, Man the Iron Mask. It's really, really cool. Got Jeremy Irons, John Malkovich, Joe do
1: Oh, yeah, I remember I had a great cast. Um, it was it was really good. I really liked it. I mean, I was in a phase that I was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, this was... after when, You know, it's
1: like the post-Titanic phase where he went through a slur of films.
0: It was. It was a difficult period because, I mean, he was interested as a hot young talent, I mean, doing Basketball Diaries and um, This Boy's Life, and then he goes off and does, like, the Titanic era, so you've got Titanic, The Beach, and Man in the Nine Mask, and then I mean, for myself, I think it's Scorsese who's best responsible for for saving DiCaprio's career. Cause, I mean, he brings him on to do things like The Departed and Shutter Island and The Wolf of Wall Street. And essentially, that's what DiCaprio always needed was just a proper director. And I think in many ways, he's become, their working relationship has become what he has with uh, De Niro in many ways. They just work very well together. So it's always exciting if you've got DiCaprio Scorsese project, same way as if you've got a Scorsese-Gennaro project, or a cha Fat-John Woo, or Luke Besson and um, Gene Reno project. So,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of directors pair themselves up with, um, with certain actors, particularly
0: more. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: they have, like, a better chemistry. They probably have similar... Um, Things they they are they they I guess they know each other's limits well and how to like how far they're willing to push to be different.
0: Yeah, I would say that definitely the best one is Herzog and Kinski uh, mainly because they're both nuts and they both tried to kill each other on numerous occasions. But the fact is that Kinski was never better when he was working with Herzog, and Herzog since Kinski's death has basically been trying to find his new loony. Uh, working with the likes of Christian Bell, Nicolas Cage to really great effect. And, I mean, I would love to see Herzog do more with Nicolas Cage. I think they, they vibe well off each other, especially seeing like Bad Lieutenant, Port of uh, Call, New Orleans. Um, I think I would love to see more films like that for them. But, um, obviously back to Three Musketeers though. I mean, I feel this is very underrated. I think this isn't a bad film on the Anson filmography. I think it's, it's somewhere in that middle ground. Um, it's not as good as like, you know, the high points, like we said already, like Event Horizon, Mortal Kombat, but at the same time, it's not right there at the bottom when we like it, like things like Resident Evil 4 and, you know, Pompeii.
1: <laughs> Which we haven't talked about yet, so.
0: <laughs> you, you can but, tell but how well, well see, we're looking for We'll but.
1: see Pompeii, so will uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have the second viewing might be interesting, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> So what would you recommend as
0: a uh, further viewing? I think we have pretty much throughout this review, we've gone over my further viewing for this. As I said, I would just watch the Oliver Reed, uh, three Musketeers or the Charlie Sheen Musketeers. And, uh, man in the iron man. uh, yeah, man in the iron mask. I think that would be those, those three. I think, I mean, the Oliver Reed version had, a, a passable sequel, uh, the four Musketeers, but, um, yeah, I think certainly any of those three, I don't think you can go too wrong. I mean, they capture the spirit of what the Musketeers are. I mean, you can obviously, there are, as we mentioned already, there's numerous versions of of the Three Musketeers adaptations. I mean, right back to sort of like turn of the century uh, sort of filmmaking, you've got films from like 1913 of the Three Musketeers. If you want to go like real deep cuts into this, there's like Mexican versions of the Three Musketeers, or you've got Disney versions of the Three Musketeers. Yeah. There. It's exactly. a story which adapts itself well, um, as clearly seen by the amount of times it's been remade. Um, but I would say for myself, those are so personally my three favorite solving uh, incarnations of, of this story. But what about yourself? Yeah, I mean,
1: yeah, no, I mean, uh, you're, you're definitely, like, I think those are, are really good choices. I, d- I didn't... Um... I actually didn't really have much prepared, but <laughs> I was thinking about it. And I was like, you know, if you think about something like this, like something kind of goofy and fun and kind of like a lot of sword play, I would say like, uh, pirates of the cat is a really good one. Um, curse of the black pearl is what I would start with, obviously. Um, I mean, uh, other movies that I haven't seen in a million years that I could think of is maybe like Mask of Zorro or something yeah. like that, like something with a lot of swordplay. Uh, that, that's definitely up there where it it could be like, I think these two are, are good additions to it.
0: Yeah, definitely. If, I mean,
1: you know, if you're not looking for Three Musketeers, you know, you want something like outside of Three Musketeers, but you want to pair it with this Three Musketeers.
0: Yeah, if you want to watch Three Musketeers with some swordplay, <laughs> then, uh, then I'll say the the, the way to go. But no, do, I mean, Antonio uh Zorro, especially the first one, is definitely a really good, a good modern swordplay flick. Um it's just a shame that I really did more with that franchise. I think the first film had such potential and then they waited a long time to do the sequel and it just never really, really hit, hit home really, so. But no. um but no, that brings us to the end of another edition of Movies and Tea. would like to thank everyone, of course, for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button, whether you're listening to us on Podomatic or iTunes or wherever you happen to be listening to the show. Um, it all certainly helps. Um, also, you can follow us on both Facebook and Instagram, as well as Twitter. Um, let us know what you think of the show. Uh, let us know what you think of the podcast of uh and the filmography. We really appreciate to, uh, hear your thoughts on that. Uh, on these films and uh let us know your your personal favorites. Um, but we will of course be back uh